So I've been arguing that while we have no obligation to observe any form of Jewish Sabbath day that has been fulfilled by Christ, yet still we have an obligation to observe this command as we do the rest of the nine because it's based on the very nature of God as we see in the creation account. And God has indeed woven into the fabric of creation the sense that his creation, his, if you would, the crown of his creation, man who is created in his image would take a day for rest just as God rested from his labor. At six days he created all things and in the seventh he rested and therefore he hallowed this day. He made it holy. And that's what we're depending on. We're depending on this being a principle that derives from creation, not from the giving of the law merely uh, at Mount Sinai. There has been a, a dramatic cultural shift. I don't think any of us would argue against that in this country. In fact, in the West, there's been a dramatic cultural shift. And that shift has moved away from a Christian conscience, a heritage that whether people would admit it or not, Oftentimes the argument goes, well, the Founding Fathers were as much deists, which were not Christians, as they were Christians. And yet the argument stands that the very society those deists lived in was a Christianized society. And so we can see a very clear devolution, if you will, movement away from Christian principles. And amongst a host of other biblical norms that we've lost, we've also seen very clearly the dissolving of any sense of a day that is holy unto the Lord, that we should observe a day as holy unto the Lord, holy in H-O-L-Y, separate it unto God. Remember that there is in this commandment many benefits for mankind, so as a culture, we, in fact, deceive ourselves, and we, in fact, move ourselves away from benefits that God has given to man to observe this when we observe this command. If God has created the Sabbath day for man, then the observance of the day of rest must be good for us. And that's indeed what Christ said, is that we were not created for it, it was created for us. In it, we see an equality of rest. I've already argued for that. And a resistance to greed. I'll talk about that a little bit more. But this day promotes a good physical and mental health. We know nowadays, scientifically speaking, that stress, by every indication, does as much harm or more as any long-term physical detriment or activity does to our lives. Stress can be a killer in so many ways to us. And God has woven into creation a day, a principle, that we are to observe a day of rest, which at the very least encourages those who would pro be more stressed out, <laughs> the stressed out type, to not only take a day of rest, but think about you have the right to take a day of rest. I don't know if you're like me, but... Sometimes when I go on vacation, I don't have the time. I don't know if I have the right to be on vacation. 
there are some people that are fairly duty-oriented, and taking time off feels like they're not fulfilling their duty. But this is a right, it's a duty, it's a command to keep. So you can keep it with a clear conscience. It's not you being lazy to take a day off. Remember, we have 16% only of our days to keep to God. The rest is God. The, the rest God gives to us to do work and labor six days. And on the seventh, we rest. And for believers especially, this is a benefit that unbelievers don't share. This day promotes a rekindling of our soul allegiance to God and worship. This is perhaps, and I believe it is, the greatest advantage to this day for mankind is that it sets our mind back to God. It says that he is the Lord of our lives. He is our creator. He is the one that we want to remember solely for this day. We observe a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath day, in order for us to reorient our focus and to reobserve God, as it were. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, as the day goes on, as the week goes on, sometimes we are not very God-oriented with our busyness. And that day, this day, serves as a means, a continual reminder for us, as it says there in Exodus 20. Well, tonight I just want to look, first of all, at some examples in the Old Testament of what happened when Israel neglected this commandment? What did it cost them when they neglected it? Now, I'm going to be very careful because I don't want to look back there and say, see, we have to do it in the same way, otherwise the same end is our end. But there are New Testament reasons to look back on the Old Testament and say, these were examples for us. As we'll see tonight in Hebrews as we close, the author to the Hebrews does that very same thing. So we're looking at this, and God willing, we'll glean some good principles that we can take from these examples. First of all, the warning. Exodus 31, 14 through 15, describes a very sober warning from God concerning the requirement to keep this commandment and the results, the consequences of not keeping it. You shall keep the Sabbath verse 14, because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does not does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest. Holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Well, how serious was this threat? Numbers 15, if you'll turn there, verses 32 through 36. I'm going to start reading, and you're welcome if you want to turn there to turn. If not, just listen. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done him. In other words, they weren't sure that what he was doing should be maybe defined as work. They weren't sure if, if this was, in fact, the work that God had told them not to do. And the Lord said to Moses, the man shall be put to death. And then 
all the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. Now that is remarkable. Outside the camp means he was marked as an unbeliever, like he wasn't part of the covenant people. For not observing the Sabbath day. And the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones, as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, I'll, I'll tell you by first-hand account, very recently I've heard an atheist point to this text and say, how could anybody follow a God who would demand this of his people? But as I see it, that's absolutely normal for an atheist to say that, isn't it? God, if you don't believe God has any right to reign over you, then when he makes a judgment concerning you, you're not going to like it and you're not going to think it's just, will you? It's absolutely right. But if God is who he says he is, and his, if his creatures on any point think, ah, it's, this is not important for me, then death, I mean, Adam, <laughs> if you take it a step further, Adam just ate a piece of fruit. And death fell upon all men. Why? It's not because of the transgression merely. It's because who we transgress against. And God would be regarded as holy among his people especially. You know, he was preparing them to go into a land that had no fear of God. No fear of this God. And he was preparing his people to know that while you're in this land, you need to fear me and not go after their gods. I'm the true God, and I am holy, and I hold you accountable for my law. Well, it's this very allegiance to God's law that should make us thankful for Christ, because we can't fulfill this. I don't care who you are. This man was stoned because he went out and picked stones. But how many of them, according to Christ and what he teaches in Matthew 5, about the real requirements of the law, the depth of the law, the, the law that goes deeper than just our actions? But if you look on a brother to hate a brother, you've committed murder in your heart already. You look at a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart already. Well, how many of us keep the Sabbath in our hearts all the time? let alone keep any semblance of it outwardly speaking. This is a great time to remember Christ, that in fact he, according to the author to the Hebrews, went outside the camp and took upon us our reproach, even for breaking this law. Christ is pictured amazingly in this judgment of this Sabbath breaker. Because in our place he went there, outside the camp. Hebrews chapter 13. You'll remember that back in Exodus 31, 14 through 15, Moses warned against the one who breaks this command will be cut off. If a single Sabbath breaker breaks the command, they shall be cut off from the whole congregation. That's exactly what we saw in Numbers. But that should clue us into something. Breaking this law affected the entire congregation. 
And that's what I want to look at next. First, we looked at the warning. Next, the national offense. The Sabbath day was to Israel a covenant sign. It was because God gave it to them as the creator God, not merely as individuals, but as his covenant people. And that was, of course, on Mount Sinai, along with all the other terms of the covenant. We see the national offense first of Israel in breaking this commandment of the heart. You can see it in Amos 8, which is where we'll go. Amos chapter 8, verses 4 through 7. You can also see it in Isaiah 1, 13 through 17. Listen to Amos, the prophet here. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? Listen to their heart about the Sabbath. And the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the need for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will forget any, uh, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Now, notice the agreement between hating the Sabbath day and the promotion of greed in that text. They wanted so quickly to get past what God had ordained for them to observe so that they could get back to their oppression, their greedy gain. That's exactly what's being distributed here or uh, commented here, prophesied of here. This woe is being given by Amos because the people in their hearts rejected the very principle of the Sabbath. And along with that rejection of the principle of the Sabbath came, on the other hand, greed. And everything that greed does. Now, I'll talk about that a little bit later. But to the greedy, the Sabbath day is an inconvenience, to be sure. And none of us would argue that greed is a virtue. We all know that greed is not a virtue. It's a vice. It's a terrible vice that causes all kinds of chaos and oppression in the world. But do you see the value in keeping a day holy unto the Lord as a means of restraining greed in ourselves? But this is just not ourselves. Amos is talking to the people. He's talking to the nation. And this was a sin of Israel and indeed Judah at this time would expand it until first the destruction of Israel, the northern kingdom, and then the destruction of the southern kingdom. But notice how when we speak about Judah, when scripture speaks about Judah's case, because Amos is speaking directly to the northern kingdoms, and he's also speaking to some, sometimes to Judah, but now we hear Jeremiah speaking directly to Judah, and now we see that they didn't just despise the law in their hearts, they despised it in practice as well. Jeremiah 17, 19 through 23. And this is a record of their disdain for the Sabbath day in practice. Thus saith the Lord to me, Go and stand in the people's gate by which the kings of Judah enter and by which they go out and in all the gates of Jerusalem and say, Hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah and all Judah, all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem who enter by these gates. Thus saith the Lord, Take care for the sake of your lives and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. 
And do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath or do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your fathers. Verse 23 is their conviction. Yet they did not listen or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck that they might not hear and receive instruction. When you despise God's laws in your heart, you will despise them in practice. Notice that God did not merely deal in a threatening way with his people. He promised them good if they would but obey. You can see that in Leviticus 26, 1 through 13, Isaiah 56, 6, and Isaiah 58, 13 through 14, as well as in the text there in Jeremiah. Well, Jeremiah speaks about the consequences several times in his prophecies. Jeremiah 25, 11, and Amos spoke about it in Amos 8 there. Jeremiah 25, 11 says this, This whole land shall become a, ruined and a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Now, that was first promised all the way back in Leviticus. If you break my commands... I'm going to bring this curse upon you. Now they've been breaking God's commands, one of them being the Sabbath day. What's so important about Jeremiah saying 70 years? What does that have to do with anything? Well, go to 2 Chronicles 36, 17 through 21. We see why the term 70 years is so important here. Because it has to do with the breaking of the Sabbath day. There is a principle that coincides in the Old Testament that when man rests, so does the land rest. So does the machinery, or in those days it was the cattle rested. Second Chronicles 36, 17 through 21. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or age, and he gave them all into his hand. This is speaking about the judgment of God by Babylon that God brought against Judah. He gave them all into his hand, and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and his princes, and these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. Verse 21 is very key, and it helps us understand what Jeremiah said with 70 years. What did he imply? To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So as the people did not observe the Sabbath principle, God said, I am going to judge you, and at the same time, those Sabbaths will be observed in the land because you won't be there to break them. Now, th that's as far as I'm going to go with the Old Testament examples. But in that, don't we see a pretty sober picture of how important God's laws are to him. Now we could say from that, well, Christ has fulfilled them, therefore we don't need to worry about all that. But is that what I've been arguing for? Is It doesn't fit that premise. 
this commandment really moves back to creation. Therefore, it precedes Sinai. Therefore, we're not put to death if we break it. <laughs> there are differences, to be sure. And again, I won't go so far as to say we're identical with Israel. We're not. Praise God we're not. We're in a better covenant under better principles, and we have an eternal mediator. But we can apply, I think, at least three basic applications from these examples. First, we should observe the day as a congregation. The day was not to be merely an individualistic observance. Now, I'm okay if somebody has to work, if there are things you can't do but to observe a day of rest on a day besides Sunday, do it. But don't, whatever you do, do it in forsaking this assembly. It was a congregational, a covenantal day unto the Lord. One that we should strive to keep together as God's covenant people. Secondly, we should reverence God in our observance of it. We should see that in those examples, God is extremely zealous of his commands and of his right to be honored and obeyed. That should be part of the conviction of our heart when we think of this commandment. And third, we should never allow greed to deter us from observing it. You know, it seems to me that the one thing that Israel fell into when they went into Canaan is they looked around them at the people in Canaan and eventually they started seeing them increase in their wealth. They started seeing them and they, they started seeing lust of, with the lust of the eyes, their women, their culture. They seem to be doing pretty good. And all of a sudden you see Israel following in just the same sins that they were performing. Well, greed is lust. <laughs> Any way you slice it, it's the inordinate desire for physical gain. And it will deter us from keeping this principle as unto the Lord, and it will deter us from expressing love in our hearts to God in keeping this commandment. If you're not already doing this, we need to begin to ask ourselves this question. Biblically speaking, what should I be leaving off in order to set this day aside for God's honor? That's what making it holy means, separating it. I've been asking myself that question. And not only for myself, but really to promote it in others. To promote the observance of a day of rest for others because it's for everyone. It's for everyone's good. I could go on and on about that, but for time's sake, I just want to finish here with this whole thing I want to finish here. And I want to look at the future application of this principle. And for that, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 3. This is going to be a very quick kind of a run a, a, a drive-through of Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, and I hope it's encouraging for us. And I hope that we can see something in it maybe we haven't seen before, a connection of God's work from the foundation of the world and God's completion of that work. That's what I gather from this. 
The argument preceding chapter 3, verse 7, is that Jesus is divine. He reigns in heaven with a glory greater than the angels. As a sinless man, he has reconciled us to God. He is indeed our elder brother. And therefore, Hebrews 3, 5, and 6 says this, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. I want you to do something. Put those, that, that phrase together, God's house as a servant, to testify uh, the things that were to be spoken later. Listen to this. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son that speaks about inheritance, and we are his house. <laughs> if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Now I want you to take notice of what he says about Moses. Moses is faithful in all of God's house as a servant. Jesus is a son. And by the way, we are his house. <laughs> So Moses was in the house of Jesus as a servant. That's what he's saying there. So to the Hebrews he's, re he's writing this to, there's no comparison here between Moses and Jesus. But notice what he's urging them on to. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And now he's going to go back in time. Something that the Hebrews would have gotten. And he's going to give them a description of what they failed. Some of them failed to do. He calls them to persevere in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 3. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. You can go to Psalm 95 or write that under your notes if you want to. He repeats that phrase in verse 15. On the day of testing in the wilderness... For we have come to share in Christ. Now, what he's talking about here, I'm sorry, go back to verse 8. He's talking about the children of Israel. They've been redeemed out of Egypt, and now they're wandering in the wilderness, and they failed there. In fact, God didn't let a generation of them enter into the promised land. And that's exactly what he's warning against. Don't harden your hearts like they did. Our ancestors did. When they were redeemed, when they were numbered amongst God's covenant people, and they didn't believe God. It's exactly what he's concerned with. Verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ. What does that mean? In his inheritance. We're in his house. He's the son and we're in his house that he's built. And we are his house I'm sorry, sorry, we are his house. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So there's the idea of perseverance in the faith, faith again. Now here's a searching question in verse 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Who were they? He answers it. Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? Now here's the sobering reality. All of those, he's taking an example from that day. All those that came out of Egypt were redeemed, were they not? That's the picture, their redemption from slavery, from bondage in Egypt. That's the picture, and yet they failed. They hardened their hearts. And he's saying to his readers, don't do that. Don't harden your hearts. 
it's quite clear that the author, I'm sorry, before I go here, they did not enter the promised land, he says, because of unbelief. And notice in Hebrews 3.18 through chapter 4, verse 1, we'll go into chapter 4 now. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his arrest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, this is his heart again, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. What he's saying is, you and I are still here. (laughs) We haven't made it to the promised land yet. We're still here. So like them, don't be like them and harden your heart. Don't fail when you've already professed to be in his house. But he goes on. It's quite clear that the author is urging these Hebrew professing Christians on to final faithfulness, as well as the New Testament does to all Christians. This is for us. So that indeed, unlike those who died in the wilderness of Israel and never made it into the promised land, these who he's writing to would enter into his rest. But then we ask the question, we can ask it here, but didn't some make it into the rest? Didn't some make it into the promised land? Well, he answers this in chapter 4, verse 8. For if Joshua would have given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So this is especially for the Jew, okay? If you're a Hebrew and you're a believer in Christ, you might have said it when he says, well, those in the wilderness, they didn't enter the land. And you would have said, well, some of them did later. And he says, but that's not the rest I'm talking about. And that's not even the rest God promised them, ultimately. Listen, for if Joshua had given them rest... God would not have spoken of another day later on. But this is interesting. Because Joshua did lead Israel to inherit the land. And this is the word of the Lord in Joshua 23.1. Yahweh had given rest to Israel from their surrounding enemies. And that same theme is spoken of in Joshua 21, 43 through 44. But what the author to the Hebrews is pointing out is that rest is not the rest that God ultimately intended for his people. It's the same thing that he speaks about in Hebrews chapter 11, when those people were seeking a city whose building and foundation was God. Not of this world. They were not looking ultimately for a city or a dwelling place, a place of rest, that this world could afford. What's the conclusion? Verse 9, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now this is the question. What is that? What is that Sabbath rest that awaits the people of God? If the promised land wasn't enough, if those who didn't make it in from the wilderness didn't get there, what is he urging these Hebrew Christians on to? Here's the answer. Verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering, underline or something just in your brain, his rest. Verse 3. They shall not enter my rest. Verse 5. They shall not enter my rest. 
Verse 6, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, that is his rest. In verse 10 and 11, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. In summary, that is, let us be diligent unless, until we've crossed the finish line. That's how Paul speaks about it in Philippians 13. I press on towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So it's God's rest that awaits us. It's God's rest that awaited these Hebrews. But again, what does that mean? What does it mean to enter God's rest? Verse 4, I think this is where we really are helped to understand this. He says it's akin to when God rested on the seventh day from his works. Here's, here's what I believe he's saying. The author, the author is saying that there remains a future day when the faithful of God, those in God's house built by Christ, rest with God in the same rest that he has taken from the beginning of creation. This is when his people will be at rest is when they rest with him. This is when recreation meets consummation. That's it. This is the hope of glory. This is heaven where we will enter God's rest. Now there is something so satisfying every time I say that. That God in his creation says, after six days, I'm resting. Knowing of a fall, knowing that he was going to save a people, and he was going to restore that people that he would save, ultimately, in his rest. <laughs> That's amazing. The, the principle of the Sabbath day rest is a principle that intertwines creation, redemption, recreation, and eternal life with God in his rest. Now, you may not appreciate that. I hope you appreciate that. But maybe you'll appreciate it more when you see what is stored up for the wicked. Revelation 14.11 says this, Amongst the wicked, amongst the judgments that they will receive, he says, And the smoke of torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest. No rest. The absence of of the benevolence of God, the outpouring of his wrath 
will be for the wicked that they will never rest. So the great end, the great rest of the redeemed, all of the redeemed is realized when we are resting with God in his presence. This is what they live by faith for in chapter 11. This is why we're living by faith now. And this is our longing. Every time we observe the Sabbath principle, it's amazing that the Sabbath principle, the Lord's day, resides on the day that Christ rose, completing the work of redemption, beginning that eternal day. There's so much to say here. I feel like we're just touching on a, a theme that is just exploding in redemptive terms in the New Testament and indeed throughout Scripture. But just as we close this entire topic of the fourth commandment, keep these things in mind. We observe this commandment as a principle established in creation. We fulfill it by faith in Christ alone. That's it. You'll never fulfill this command on your own, in your own duties. You'll never commend yourself to God as meritorious for heaven by observing it. We do it by love, because of love for him. And we observe it to the glory of God. We trust that God appointed it for our good, as Christ said, and we persevere in faith, looking forward to our eternal entrance into God's heavenly rest. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the peace, this shalom, this eternal peace. What can be better as we think about it than entering into your rest? In this world, we are weary and we are heavy laden. I think of these people that were murdered today. Entering into your rest. To be absent with the Lord as Christ has come means that we are present, or absent with the body means that we are present with the Lord. And yet we look forward to that day, not only when our faith is sight, but when Christ returns. And we will be like him, our Savior, our elder brother, our Lord the one who has established and built this house. We look towards that day of rest, even while, God, by your mercy, we would rightly observe this commandment. In Jesus' name, amen.